0: Hey what's up everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzack. So this is a very special episode of Untenured Tracks. This was going to be the semester finale. I'm still calling it the semester finale. I had originally planned to take a couple of weeks off, maybe a month off after this episode aired. Um, just to give myself some time to recharge, but then since recording this, I've had so many people interested in coming on the show to share their work and their pedagogy and their scholarship that we're going to be able to go probably into June and maybe even into July, actually, now that I think about it, Um, so (laughs) no summer break for me. Um, In spite of that, I still want to call this the semester finale. This is a very important episode to me, Um, and so this week we have returning to the show our first two-time guest. Dr. Erin O'Neill from Sam Houston State University, bringing with her, her I think her entire research team, um, I'm sure Erin will correct me if I'm wrong, joining Dr. O'Neill this week is Brittany Aquaviva, Katherine Meeker, Shamika Kelly, and Jessica Fleming, all from Sam Houston State University, all incredible, here to talk about their work on sexual assault case processing. This is the semester finale, episode 33 of On Tenure Tracks. This is a very special semester finale, if there is such a thing as an end to this endless semester (laughs) um, for any of us. Um, I've been very excited about this. Um, So it's a lot of firsts on this episode. It's our first two-time guest. Um, Erin O'Neill is back. Um, And we're recording this before her episode has come out, but I'm sure she's already, like, a superstar fan favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Erin pushed me to do something that I had been thinking about doing with the show for a while, but I hadn't really had the, the nerve to start asking around for. So, this is our first um, thematic topic episode, this is our first uh, panel episode, and this is our first um, full uh, Everybody's from the Same Institution episode. So, uh, Aaron O'Neill Has a Posse, I think, is the title <laughs> <laughs> of this one. Um, if somebody out there has any kind of artistic ability and can make a graphic for that real quick, I'm sure... <laughs> People at Sam Houston State would appreciate that (laughs) very much. Um, So I would like you to introduce yourselves um, very quickly, just so everybody knows who is who on the the show. And we'll start with Erin.
1: Hi, I'm Erin O'Neill. I'm an assistant professor at Sam Houston State University in the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology. Uh, my primary research area is sexual assault case processing, and I also dabble a little bit in campus climate, but my heart definitely is in sexual assault case processing.
0: Cool. All right. Um, Brittany, tell us about yourself.
2: Hello, my name is Brittany Afalviva. I'm at the same institution uh, as previously mentioned. I am, let's see, the end of my second year, so I'm a second year PhD student. And uh, my research primarily focuses around system responses to sexual victimization. So I've looked at university responses, societal, and then CJ-related or criminal
3: justice-related responses.
0: Cool, cool. Uh, Shamika, tell us about yourself.
3: I am also a second-year PhD student at SAM. Uh, Brittany is in my cohort, and so is Kat. And um, I also look at system responses to sexual assault, and currently my research is centered around uh, investigations is what I've been mainly focusing on. Um, And so that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about today.
0: Very cool. Jessica, tell us about yourself, please.
3: Um, My name is Jessica
4: Fleming, and I am a first-year, first-semester PhD student at SAM. My research interest is mostly about um, system responses to victimization of women, and I'm just kind of getting into everything right now.
0: Starting your PhD in the middle of a pandemic, I'm sure, is like (laughs) no extra added pressure or anything. Um, Good for you. Um, Kat, can you tell us about yourself, please?
5: Yeah, so my name is Catherine Meeker. I am also a second year doctoral student at St. Houston State University. And my research interest um, also falls in line with everyone else, so I look at institutional responses, so criminal justice responses and university responses to sexual victimization.
0: Awesome. Um, So before we get started with this, can one of you tell me a little bit about, like, what sexual assault case processing scholars, like, what are you focusing on?
6: Um,
5: So I think, generally speaking, sexual assault case processing is basically about understanding what factors either Facilitate or hinder a sexual assault case. So um, what influences case attrition or um, what results in like a successful case
1: uh, clearance? Yeah, so to piggyback off that, it's, you know, the responses to victims, to witnesses and to suspects during case processing. So not necessarily the responses to the crimes themselves, but... Um, the way in which the cases move through the system and the decision-making factors that either activate or like what Kat said, hinder um, criminal justice response and the factors that result in successful case processing. And the definitions of successful case processing are different depending on the criminal justice actors you talk to. So for Police, that may be arrest and clearance, so clear to other arrest. And for prosecutors, that may be successful prosecution and sentencing. And then for um, maybe the victim advocates who work as part of a SART team, their kind of um, their definition of successful case processing may be just following, um, and doing what the victim wants in that case, regardless of whether that ends in an arrest. Um, so for example, victims may report because they want restraining order, but not necessarily because they want it to result in the prosecution of the suspect.
0: So we're talking from, um, the initial contact with law enforcement all the way potentially through probation and parole, correct?
1: Correct. Most of the people on this call, um, study the initial, um, decision-making stages of case processing. So primarily Mm. police decision-making and then initial prosecutorial decision-making. So that initial filing decision, um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you all.
0: Hearing, hearing (laughs) nothing. I think you're probably right. Um, so what got you all interested in this? Should
2: we do like a nose go? (laughs)
0: whatever system you want to work out if you want to rock paper scissors for it um (laughs) it's it's up to you
3: so for me my my experiences at work kind of informed my research interests so i worked as a supervisor in the crime lab at the houston police department and i was assigned to the sexual assault uh, project that we had and so I was in communication with prosecutors, with investigators, and I was very passionate about it. And so when I transitioned into academia, I kept that passion, you know, to pursue these cases. And so when Mm -hmm. I was at the crime lab, I was more so secluded to um, my findings. So once I finished a particular case, or once my team finished a particular case, we would hand it off, Mm -hmm. hand off our findings. And so... I became more interested in what happens next. You know, so what happens with the arrest? What happens with the prosecution? I really want to know these things. Yeah. And so that pretty much sparked my interest.
0: Cool. Who else has a story to tell?
3: I'm gonna
2: jump in. I think mm-hmm. for me, so my undergrad I had done an um internship and I was a legal and medical advocate for domestic violence and sexual assault. And so originally I think I just became really connected with survivors Um, and then kind of as I evolved I think like going through my you know my master's program and then getting into a PhD program I wanted to kind of like keep that passion you know with uh, survivors and kind of giving that them a platform and and a a voice per se Mm -hmm. and so then that's kind of I snowballed into the whole, you know, rape culture and all things kind of um, being influenced through um, that lens, and so I think that's kind of where like my passion um, came from.
0: Cool, cool. I'm gonna have to call on somebody. This feels like class now. <laughs> <laughs> this feels like class.
4: I can go. <laughs> I ended up getting interested in, um, system responses to victimization of women, mostly from experiences that I've had with individuals in my own life and how it's been so varied. Mm Some of them have really positive experiences and some of them were just horrible, like gut wrenching. And I wanted to know what we were doing and if that was just typical for the people that I knew or if it was all over the country and what could be done about it.
6: Okay
5: um i think mine is i guess different from everyone else i came to sam not knowing anything about like victimology sexual assault case processing nothing and luckily i got assigned to dr O'Neill, who like introduced me to the subject and i just fell in love
3: from there
0: fortune smiled on you
3: Mm -hmm. she has a way dr O'Neill has a way of doing that to you you know (laughs) Um, she just run. rubs off on you in a good way. Guys, <laughs> you're okay, making a, me blush, <laughs> okay? In a good way. I miss you all so
1: much, but this is making me cry.
0: I like the qualifier that she rubs off on you in a good way. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> just so we're clear. <laughs> yeah.
1: I had had already kind of briefly talked about this when we talked previously on the one-on-one interview, but my research interests kind of followed the same line as Brittany's, Um, worked as an advocate, um, experienced firsthand the ways that police were inappropriately responding to sexual victimization, and that really kind of launched my career
0: cool good um i keep saying cool a lot. it must be like a new nervous tick i've developed i don't know uh, <laughs> well
1: it is all very cool it's
0: very cool yeah i'm trying not to say um my almost two-year-old has been watching frozen on like a loop frozen and moana and i guess when well, we didn't realize this but uh Anna says um a lot and so now like if you ask my toddler a question, she prefaces everything with um, and then and then says no. <laughs> like like Do you want to go to bed? Um, no. <laughs> like thank you. Like you were suddenly Disney made you sassier. Um, so it's a fun time in quarantine here. Um, yeah, it keeps everything interesting for sure. Um, so I've got a bunch of questions here. Um. Now I'm gonna notice every time I say um <laughs> two. Uh, so let's see. Uh, so could you talk about doing this research through the like the lens of rape culture? I know that um, Aaron um, and Brittany, this is both something that you do. Um, could you talk a little about a little bit about that?
2: So um, you now I'm conscious
0: of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. So kind
2: of so my research really started out looking at uh perceptions of sexual assault. And so I then was picking up on certain themes in terms of just kind of, like, victim-blaming um, and different kind of beliefs and statements that were false statements, if you will, um, that were being made about survivors of sexual assault. And so that kind of then evolved into, okay, so this is happening with college students right? this is when I was just starting out. And then I went into a dark rabbit hole of reading literature and then you know my naive self was like wow this is a very large problem right it it spans across just not college students but society as a whole and so I think it's important to keep in mind and I know (laughs) O'Neill, Dr. O'Neill and I have really worked on this so I'm like why why can't we just fix the problem, right? Like, if it's within law enforcement or police officers, like just fix the way that they, you know, think. And you have to remember it's much larger than just, like, within, you know, law enforcement agencies or within the courtroom, right? It's, it's society. It's across society. And so if we're going to effectively address potential problematic areas in addressing or interacting with victims, we have to essentially sit at the root of it right which was then going to be at assessing it at the societal level
1: yeah i think that you know everything that britney is saying i agree with that sexual assault and rape are unique because there are so many cultural and societal myths surrounding the crime what the victims look like what suspects look like what these interactions and incidents look like And that there are really strong opinions about what constitutes, you know, quote unquote, real rape. This idea that it's it involves a a woman, um, typically a white woman walking down the alley at night by herself and an African-American perpetrator jumps out of a bush and rapes her at knife point. And this is the kind of vision that we have when we hear the word rape and those widespread societal beliefs permeate organizations that deal with sexual victimization. And I, you know, I'm always trying to tell, you know, talk to my colleagues that it's not that this is necessarily a police problem. It's that this is a societal problem and police are not immune from the cultural stereotypes that surround this crime. And when you couple that with the kind of hyper-masculine, androcentric police organization, sometimes these myths and these, you know, this rape culture-specific rape myths um, are even more widespread. And so for me, it's challenging to look at police responses or prosecutorial responses to sexual victimization without considering the wider spread kind of stereotypes that surround the crime, And so I think that that's why a lot of my work kind of looks through the sociological concept of rape culture to try to see how um, police interact in this culture when they interface with victims. And I think that this is um, really this is puts less blame on police. And I think that this is another thing that I'm always constantly aware of is that we criticize the police often in their mishandling of sexual assault when you think about the backlog and Shamika can talk about this in way more depth than I can but there's breakdowns in investigation in this crime all the time and so when you situate that breakdown in investigation within the larger concept of rape culture it ne- it makes it so you're not kind of narrowing in that this is a police problem this is a societal problem
0: for sure so i know that um so i i came into this um through, like, a victimology perspective as well. Um, and so, um, obviously, like, have a lot of familiarity with teaching about rape myth and rape cultures and and things like that. Um, but why is it important to think about mythology or myths surrounding people who might be committing these types of offenses? Like, why is it important to consider what, like, what's the truth of what the suspect actually looks like?
2: I think when we start to address certain myths, the, so like, um, victim-blaming statements, um, I think we start to then dismantle kind of these, like we said, these cultural expectations and societal expectations of what sexual assault should look like. Um, so it's really important to like get at those rape myths and appropriately dismantle them and adjust them so that we don't further victimize those who come forward and disclose, right? So, you know, if someone comes and discloses, you know, their sexual victimization, that's a very personal, you know, thing that they're deciding to do. And then if they're met with hostility because, you know, you're, God forbid, right? You, you say things like, oh, well, were you drinking? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, were you out late at night? Why were you by yourself? That's just, you know, those aren't needed. Mm-hmm. That's, that has nothing to do with their victimization, and then just further victimizes an individual. Um, and then, if you you know you think about it in terms of police responses, they're considered like right, the gatekeepers to the criminal justice system. And so, just disclosing victimization is really hard to do. Um, and so, then the decision to initiate law enforcement. Um, and, and if someone's met with kind of that hostility or those negative um, statements, you can only imagine the detrimental effects um, and victimization, essentially, that they're going to be feeling
6: mm-hmm.
2: thus far, you know, like, further.
0: Mm-hmm. So, in other words, like, if somebody is victimized and they and they choose to come forward, but they're... Um, attacker does not match the stereotype that police have typically then that could be one possible route of them being um like further traumatized right um it's giving police yeah, like a way to disbelieve them or um police might view this as like what well, would police view it as false so a lot i mean literature kind of
2: points out if of- Victim or survivor discloses um, and they don't show appropriate, like emotions, um, they're seen as less believable, or less mm-hmm. credible. Um, and so, you know, just not having the appropriate or the expected emotion mm-hmm. can hinder um, someone's likelihood of going mm-hmm. through or their case being processed through the criminal justice system. That's wild when you think about it. Right? Because who's to say what your responses are supposed mm-hmm. to
0: be? Yeah. And it's really and cynical, too, if you think about it, right? Because it's, it's law enforcement making the decision, or trying to make the decision right away of, like, what's the chance of this being cleared? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's where yeah. credibility comes in. Which is, like I said, kind of sad.
1: Yeah, and research finds that, you know, some officers do adhere to rape myths, And that they're skeptical of cases that um, involve non-strangers, particularly intimates, um, you know, intimate partner sexual assault, seen as kind of an oxymoron to some um, because, you know, how can one rape their wife? Um, And so I think that. Buying into rape myths can actually complicate case processing because certain victims are deemed unworthy of criminal justice intervention. Mm-hmm. And so, when victims engage in behavior that is seen as risky, so for example, consuming alcohol or being in a place where drugs are sold or engaging in sex work or things like that, that the police um, may not, you know, invest full their time and effort into pursuing those cases because they look downstream, like you said, Andy, and they make assumptions about how the prosecutor will assess this victim. And then how a jury will assess this victim. Um, which is quite ironic because we know that very few cases go to trial and even, you know, even fewer in sexual assault and rape.
6: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And it, I mean, it just speaks to a bunch of things, right? Like it's important to pay attention to like every election but like especially who your DA is and like the ju- who the judges are and what their track records for these types of things are which unfortunately you know those things fly under the like not even under the radar like <laughs> invisible in every election cycle and it's it's really unfortunate um and there's That's yeah, just, oh, go ahead, Chica. Oh, No, go ahead. You're good.
3: Just adding to what Dr. O'Neill and Brittany said, I think too one of the things I think about whenever this happens, unfortunately the victims whenever they are the ones that are seemingly put on trial. I just think that whenever these cases are filtered out and whenever they fall through the cracks or when they're unfounded before, you know, it even goes any further, I think about the message that it could be sending to society especially to the defendants and the the suspects in these situations, you know, if victims are already blaming themselves and what is it that the suspect is thinking? Are they like, see, that wasn't even really rape, Mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, the the officers aren't even taking it seriously. And what does that do? Does it perpetuate Mm these rapements? You know, like it, it dismantles everything that we're trying to do as well. So Mm -hmm. that's just another thought.
0: No. And it's, it's um, well met because uh, like one of you had mentioned you know, it seems so easy just to be like, here's this problem, let's fix it. <laughs> let's go and tell them, stop doing this thing, and then <laughs> all all in a day's work. Um But it's been what, like thirty five years or so, maybe longer than that, since law enforcement have been and I mean it varies state by state and and probably even city by city, have been getting um like domestic violence types of training or retraining. So at least one whole generation of law enforcement have come and gone. And these myths, like even the hardcore ones about like, you can't rape your spouse, like still persist. And so it's just like an interesting, like not parallel, but connection between sociology and public policy. Right. That is like the constant struggle.
1: (laughs) And, Andy, you bring up, like, a really good point. So my mentor, Cassia Spawn, who um, does a lot of sexual assault case processing research, just had an article um, published earlier this year in 2020 that outlined kind of all of the rape law reform and the changes that have occurred in um, system responses to sexual violence. And the title of that paper is The More Things Change, The More They Stay the Same. And I think that, you know, the thing that, it really just continues to hit home with me is that yes, we have successes. We have small successes, but when you look over time broadly at the response to rape and sexual victimization, it's still um, very lacking.
0: So why do you think that is? I mean, I know that's a it's an impossible question and it's probably an unfair question, <laughs> but like, you know, part of the fun of this show is to think out loud about and like speculate out loud about this stuff. So like why do you think that all this time it seems like it's been such a failure
3: it is very difficult to change people's perspectives for sure it is very difficult like there can be laws written but the the laws can be symbolic to certain people Mm -hmm. like okay this law is written but i still don't think that you can rape your wife Mm
6: -hmm.
3: you know there's there's not anything written in certain policies that says when you get this sexual assault report and it is you know spelled out so much so that the discretion is lacking like there's so much discretion in how cases are founded and how cases are you know in how they're investigated that it's difficult to apply certain you know certain laws or certain rules if you will because it's so wide it's so broad that you know I think there's a the discretion you um, is fed by a lot of implicit bias, by a lot of rape myths, by different things that we can talk about for a long time, but I think it, people's minds are difficult to change.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: I think. And that affects their think, action.
6: For
2: sure. I think, too, to add off of Shemeika, it's hard to change people's minds, but I think also it's at all varying levels of power, let's just say, broadly, if we don't have a consensus, right, that Sexual violence against women or sexual violence in general is not okay. And Mm -hmm. we, you know, we don't have that general across the board understanding and belief, and it's explicitly said and constantly, it's hard then to then change those beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. Because you don't have something that's stable or consistent, um, that's kind of, you know, you know, shaking the finger at people. And then you're right, we just Jamika talked earlier, cases are kind of slipping through the cracks, but also, unfortunately, send messages. Um, although it might, they, you know, they might not intend to, it does send messages on what cases, what survivors, um, and what even suspects are worth being uh, penalized.
3: Who is rapable and who is capable of raping? Mm-hmm.
4: Dr. O'Neill says something all the time that like really made it hit home for me is that police officers and everyone involved in the criminal justice system doesn't operate in a vacuum. All of your personal biases kind of like come in whether you want them to or not. They're Mm -hmm. always present. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that's the society that we live in that has all of these myths deeply embedded.
0: Yeah. And it's a good lesson for all of you to be like thinking about now at this point in your careers, right? Like how does, how does objectivity affect um, your own research? And how is that going to affect like, even your teaching and what you decide to bring into the classroom? You know, the act of making a syllabus is subjective. You know, even like picking out what textbook you want to use, that's a subjective choice. And by going with one author over another, like you're potentially leaving stuff out that some students might think is valuable. Um, so I don't know, it's become like a thing for me, like that, like trying to deprogram myself about objectivity. Uh, <laughs> so I guess I'm soapboxing now. Um, <laughs> I apologize for that. Um, so Shmika, Aaron had mentioned a minute ago that you have a lot of experience with the backlog and I, I don't want to, um, forget about that. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about, um, like your, your experiences working, um, in a more hands-on type of setting, um, and I'm also curious about like what you wanted, or what you, I guess yeah, I guess what you wanted to accomplish by moving um, into a kind of a bigger realm and, and learning about what comes next. But um, first, could you please tell us about the backlog?
3: Um, so I believe it was 2010. That was actually my first year working in the crime lab, and also when the Houston Police Department did an audit and discovered. Um, over 6000 kits in our property room and started to devise a plan on how to get the backlog down as well as how this happened and how we can prevent this from happening again. So, and so
0: Can I interrupt? Um so what does 6000 kits look like? Like what is the physical space that that
3: Um I don't know the square footage of the property room but it's pretty large. It's, okay, um, so
0: it's not like because <laughs> I, I don't know what, like, I honestly don't know what a, what a rape kit looks it's like. It's
3: literally shelves upon shelves upon shelves of boxes yeah. of sexual Um And so we also had folders in the labs that corresponded to each kit. So we had shelves upon shelves upon mm-hmm. shelves of folders in the lab um, that had you know unique identifiers for each mm-hmm. case, and so there was a plan devised to break us up into teams um, and our managers came up with a plan to outsource these cases because it was too much for our lab to handle. So we um, sent it out to private labs to have them process the cases and then whenever they were finished we would get the data back from the lab and then we would analyze those. We would analyze their data and make sure that they they you know, apply the standards. They were accredited, and everything was was good. Mm-hmm. And then we would look for um, foreign profiles to upload into what we call CODIS, the CODIS database. And so it took us about a year or so to get that backlog down. And so once we got the backlog to zero, um, my superiors created a um, position. It was kind of toward the end. I believe, of the backlog, Um, there was a position created to um, continue to get rid of and maintain a 30-day turnaround time, get rid of the backlog, maintain a a 30-day turnaround time. So then I applied and got the position, and then we kind of went from there. So- There was a team of, I have to say this because it's the best part of this whole thing, was there was a multidisciplinary task force that was created to uh, examine how this happened, to come up with solutions to determine ways to prevent this from happening again. And so that task force was created. It was comprised of nurses, of researchers, of prosecutors, of defense attorneys, of every single stakeholder was at the table. And um, it was great to be in you know some of those meetings and see something like that happening mm-hmm. because i think that was the biggest part of getting rid of the backlog was having all these people at the table because typically in the crime lab we don't get to talk to the other areas right mm-hmm. like we talk to police like detectives as well as prosecutors minimally mm-hmm. such as hey can you tell me what happened in the case can you tell me this piece of evidence can you tell me why it's important but we don't get to literally understand their processes yeah. and we don't really get to understand ours mm-hmm. And so it was good to have a representative at the table for everybody to understand the best process for mm-hmm. us all.
0: And it's good too, that it sounds like everybody recognized that this was a, a massive problem and probably yeah. wasn't too much like finger pointing. It sounds right. like.
3: No, no, not at all. Um, there was a, it was a systematic break. Yeah. I mean, there was something that could be enhanced at each area. And uh-huh. so that's what we worked toward. I mean, when we were at the table, one of the nurses was like hey this is what we do do y'all like it we were like why do you do this we don't really need this you don't have to do this anymore and so Uh we literally changed the SART team's process as well like we talked to each other and said okay we're not going to make these slides anymore if y'all aren't using them and you Uh don't need to do these and you know it just was great to have that communication and now we still have that we're able to continue that type of relationship moving forward
0: that's really good um
3: Andy can
1: I ask Shamika a question of course so where along this timeline did the NIJ um, grant that was through Sam Houston State University, when did that come into play? Because so so in, in like- twenty eleven. Okay, yeah. So in 2010, N.I.J., um, because there had been that huge discovery in Detroit, um, the backlog had made two awards available for departments to address their backlog problem. Mm -hmm. Detroit was one of the awardees and Houston was the other awardee. Mm -hmm. I was curious, Shamika, did that collaboration, is that what encouraged you to come back to
3: academia? No, um, though it was a part of my final decision, Um, what made me, when I was at the end, I guess, of my career, I just wanted to know so much more about the process. Like I, I just kind of felt boxed in. I felt like Mm -hmm. I had, you know, my hands on this one little area and I felt like I had so much more to contribute and I wanted to learn so much more about the entire process. And I couldn't do that if I was at the crime lab. Well,
1: aren't you still at the crime lab?
3: The crime lab is kind of at my house now, so I work remotely. But <laughs> okay, got it, got it. So I'm not a full time employee. I'm now a forensic consultant. I'm able to review cases for them on a contractual basis, and so I'm not a full time employee anymore. But I mean, I'm still kind of a coworker of theirs. Um, so it's good to still have that um, ability to have my hands on the, you know, the criminal justice process in some way. And I hope to maintain that in the future. I want to try to balance academia with the practitioner
0: role. This sounds like you got a top-down view of how the entire system worked, and then you were hooked. Yeah, <laughs> and, and couldn't go back to just being in the lab. Um,
3: no.
0: So, like with your research specifically, like given your background, like what are you hoping to accomplish?
3: Well what I want to do for there's like three reasons, like three things I want to do. Okay. One, I want to know so much. Like there like you know I've said before, there's so much I want to learn about what happens and how people think and why certain things occur. Um that's number one. Number two is I really want to when I understand these things, I I'll also want the public to understand. Like I want to be able to publish certain works that will Provide transparency. So, if like right now I'm doing victim credibility and police uh, perception of rape victims, and so I want that to reach a wide audience so that they too can understand what's going on. Because before I got into academia, I didn't really know much. My friends didn't really know much. You know, I have some friends who have unfortunately experienced these situations, mm-hmm. and so not knowing what to expect or not really knowing much about the process you know kind of hinder their decision as well so i think getting this information out to the public is my second goal like i want Mm -hmm. people to know what really is going on Mm
6: -hmm.
3: and then the third is to not i don't want to blame anyone i don't i don't know you know really what's going to happen but my goal is that if there's any area of improvement i want to be able to provide that so I want to be able, if there is more training that could be done, I want that to be something that my research can point to. Like, Mm -hmm. hey, you know, you should focus on this area. And so my current project that I have with Dr. O'Neill is looking at subdomains of victim credibility. So there may be certain areas within victim credibility that police tend to focus on more than others. And I think that will be useful to tell police like, Hey, you tend to focus on moral character or you tend to focus on believability. You might want to enhance training in this area, you know, because this is where you could use some improvement or something Mm -hmm. like that. So one, I want to learn more. I'm very passionate about this. I just want to know things Two, I want the public to know things. Mm -hmm. You know, I really feel like this, this, areas that we don't really talk about much outside of academia, Mm -hmm. Um, but it is something that people either fall victim to or they know someone has fallen victim to it. And so I think it does need to be talked about more. And then three, accountability, transparency, training opportunities for institutions. So those are my goals, really.
0: Like a whole career.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. A, A whole
0: new career. yeah. It's not like your career's over. You've got...
6: Yeah.
0: <laughs> milestone after milestone already plotted out. Um, I'm
3: trying.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm i interested to see how this goes. Um, because I could see, like like... Figuring out ways to break that cycle of, like... We're just going to educate the police on what to do better. And, like... Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Find yeah. ways to change that messaging... Mm-hmm. Or like the delivery of it, or right. like, I guess the pedagogy of, of how do you train people who might not want to be trained? Yeah,
3: and I think that's why I want to say in the practitioner world, I want that to go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And I want my experience in communicating with investigators to be able to um, allow me to speak a different language. Yeah, if you will. yeah. Like deliver that message differently. Package the the message differently so that yep. it will be received better. You mm-hmm. know.
0: Yeah, you have. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah, you're on the inside. You have
3: yeah.
0: you have more legitimacy, hopefully, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, so let's see. Um, Catherine Meeker, how are you doing? I'm good. How
5: are
0: you? All right. Uh, so I, I am to understand that you specialize in adolescence. You do you do research with adolescents? I do.
5: I, um well, my master's thesis was looking at adolescent sexual assault case processing. Okay. That's
1: a mouthful, sorry.
0: <laughs> That's alright.
1: That that was published in Justice Quarterly, just FYI.
0: BT dub. <laughs> Not some fly by night <laughs> journal. Um, so why what has you what has gotten you interested in adolescence specifically?
5: Um, so I think this kind of stems from when I like came into the masters program. A few years ago, I feel so old because I still feel like I'm a master student, but I'm not. Uh, <laughs> you so feel I, I thought oh. my interest was going to be in like juvenile justice uh-huh. or juvenile delinquency or something like that. Um, and I don't know why. I just think in my undergrad, those are the classes that I really enjoyed taking.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, and then coming to SAM, I got introduced to like victimology and things of that nature. So we just kind of like meshed that mm-hmm. together. So now I'm studying...
0: Adolescence, adolescent adolescent right? victimization yeah that's that's uh, very similar to like my own path um, mm-hmm. so how is adolescent victimization and like sexual assault case processing um, different or like I guess is it different at all um, um, then for adults I, don't,
5: I wouldn't say it's like necessarily different there's like there could be certain factors that could influence adolescence that is not really taken into into consideration when you're looking at adults. Mm -hmm. So for our paper um, that Dr. O'Neill and Brittany and I are working on, we incorporated some age-specific factors. So um, whether or not the adolescent um, disclosed to their parent or their parent reported the um, incident instead of the adolescent, as well as victim age and suspect age because there could be power differentials between the adolescent and adult uh,
1: suspect. And can I just interject? So this Mm -hmm. paper specifically is looking at predicting um, victim cooperation um, victim cooperation is always is continuously found to impact case processing. Um, that's something else that's different for sexual assault than other crimes. Um, victims are typically the primary witness to the investigation, so when they withdraw cooperation, it's not uncommon for cases to just end there. And so, um, I just wanted to make that clear, be- just um, because the JQ article looks at arrest and prosecutorial decision making, and this one focuses more on victim decision making within case processing
0: okay um so i guess i want to ask a simpler question um how do i word it is there so so like comparing the adult and the juvenile system very broadly right we know that they're they're parallel systems that are, are meant to act in different ways at least philosophically um is that true for how the juvenile justice system addresses sexual assault like is it is it like uniquely different from how the adult process works? Is there like an attempt to make it to make it different somehow, but in practice it's not really different. Does that make sense
5: hmm so I don't necessarily know the differences between like juvenile um justice like pathways with decision making um compared to adult because mm-hmm. i I only focus just on sexual assault within this one um like jurisdiction, mm-hmm. um, but there are some differences between so there could be like juvenile uh, sex crime units, mm-hmm. um, as well as like adult sex crime units,
6: if, if that answers your
0: mind. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, just focusing on your jurisdiction is fine. I mean, of course, every like it, it obviously varies, like I said, state by state and county by county. Just
6: mm-hmm.
0: just kind of like I don't know, I, I find the juvenile justice system very fascinating, like that's why I, I do a lot of adolescent stuff, um in my own teaching and research, um, Mm -hmm. because I think like the power issues there are really important to think about, um, and just how paternalistic the, the juvenile system is compared to the adult system. And I was just wondering if that, if that is like true with how they handle sexual assault Mm -hmm. case processing. So
5: like, we did find that in our, um, arrest and prosecution paper is that the younger the adolescent is, they are seen as more credible, And so like their credibility isn't questioned as much and they're more likely to have an arrest or um, they're more likely to have an arrest. So um, that could also indicate like paternalism Mm -hmm. or
0: I don't know if I said that correctly. You did. You're good. Um, So
1: in relation to your question, Andy, um, so Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. And um, I think that it varies widely even within counties because so um, Los Angeles Sheriff's Department had two. Um, units that responded to sex crimes. There was just Mm -hmm. the the sex um, crimes unit generally. And then there was a special victims bureau that handled special cases. And within those special cases included um, anyone under the age of 18, Mm -hmm. in addition to um, other vulnerable populations. So individuals with mental health issues or who had um, physical Mm -hmm. uh, disability, um, things like that. But like Los Angeles, all of the cases adolescent or or um, adult all went through and were processed through the same unit so I think that even within locations there are so many um, different models
0: yeah yeah that's interesting so like I, I got like hung up there on adolescents being grouped in with other vulnerable populations which I guess makes sense academically but pragmatically seems kind of difficult (laughs) right like i i would want officers to have like opportunities to have specialized training just in adolescent victimization or just in like mental health victimization um or physical disabilities or, or whatever else um
6: I think in the context
1: of sexual assault, the reason that it's done that way is because often younger victims require special interviewers like forensic Mm -hmm. interviewers and a different approach to collecting evidence and information. So um, but don't quote me on that. But that's just something that I think about that may explain why Mm -hmm. that why the approach is that way.
0: Okay, we can put a thing in the show notes, encouraging people not to quote you.
1: <laughs> people can quote me; just it just you don't mean
2: anything.
0: Don't. We'll put that specific line in there. Don't quote me on that. Quotes, <laughs> Doctor Erin <Aaron> O'Neill. <laughs> um, so, uh, why is it, why is it important to look at like the prosecutorial side of things for adolescent, um, cases? So along with like
5: arrest or not arrest? Sorry, police. Or just specifically,
0: um, just the, just day. the complainants in general, just the complaints in general.
5: Oh, okay. Um, so I think a- along with, we just don't know a lot about, um, adolescent sexual assault case processing. Very few studies have actually looked at, um, decision-making stages. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they do, we're mainly looking at like legal factors. So case seriousness, um, and evidentiary strength. mm mm-hmm. And so with our study, we're looking at um, age-specific factors as well as um, extra-legal factors like victim credibility and things of that nature. So we're starting to see, kind of make it like a more complete picture of what adolescent sexual assault case processing is.
0: So is it fair to say that this is like such a new area of research that you're still kind of in like that trailblazing stage?
5: I guess. So, I, mean, I, I
0: will, like, I will, I will give you, you the, the title of trailblazer. Like I know that sounds, it's like a real ego move to be like, "Yes, I am the first person ever <laughs> to do this. I'm amazing." Um, I will, I will put that on all of you. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, is that is that how is that like basically like what you're doing?
5: Yeah, I think it's just it's
1: fairly new, and we just don't know much about it yet. Mm-hmm. And the body of research that does exist has found. Um, mixed results Mm -hmm. and that's likely because typically it's not an investigation just into the factors that influence specifically adolescent case processing Mm -hmm. it's a sample that includes adults and adolescents and they control for age or maybe they um use age dyads or Mm -hmm. something but um in, in terms of, like, understanding the age-specific factors or the factors that may be unique to adolescent sexual assault case processing, the the work is, um, I, I would consider, definitely in its infancy. Um, But there is work out there. Most of it, though, relies on either interview methodology, so interviewing detectives and asking them about how they respond differently to teenagers as opposed to adults, or vignette research um, that where like the age and the affect and credibility and things like that are manipulated through vignettes. Mm -hmm. And so I think what kind of set Kat's thesis apart from the research. Up until that point was the use of actual case file data, very rich case file data that allowed us to actually look at how age specific factors either do or do not play into actual police decision making processes. Okay. And I think that that's what makes case file data so rich and so um informative, because, you know, we know that there's correlation between attitudes and behavior, but actually being able to look at the case files and see the actual decisions that were made, um, I think is really unique.
0: So, Erin, I'm just curious, like, do you know why it's in its infancy? Like, why haven't people done this before? Is it just like a data availability issue? Or, like, we know that research interests, like, go through fads, right? Is it just, was it just something that just wasn't popular for whatever reason, or...?
1: I think that just generally sexual assault, so case processing research and attrition research generally has focused on domestic violence Mm -hmm. globally and then sexual assault after that. We know a lot more about domestic violence, victim cooperation, case processing. This has been something that we identified early on as being a unique type of crime because of the unique victim-suspect relationship. And so I think that when during the 70s, um, during the second, second wave feminism and kind of this increase in understanding that we have to look um, at victimization and these crimes differently... There was kind of an activation to look at sexual assault then there had been, you know, because the domestic violence movement, the rape crisis movement, domestic violence shelters, race, rape crisis centers, all were kind of coming up at the same time mm-hmm. that it was just, you know, OK, we want to learn about rape now and we mm-hmm. want to learn about how society and the police respond to rape. And it just kind of, you know, you start out broadly to answer questions and then as kind of research develops, you start to question whether those broad findings apply to specific mm-hmm. populations and, um, you know, this is probably off the topic of this show, but this summer, Jessica and Brittany will both be working on um, projects that look specifically at the case processing of certain suspect, victim, racial, ethnic dyads. Mm-hmm. Because, we're, you know, we know we control for race all the time. We know that race impacts police decision making. Um but you know we can now try to understand how race impacts and how racial mm-hmm. dyads and ethnic dyads impact sexual assault case processing decisions specifically mm-hmm. so i don't know if it's just the general flow of how research happens
0: yeah maybe yeah i mean one of the things i've been it's kind of been in the back of my mind on this book project has been or like one of the earlier iterations of the proposal was to think about like how has criminology been influenced by like things happening around it, right? Like turning the idea of objectivity upside down, and 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 ask like honestly being like, um, so Merton developed his ideas in the 1930s. What else was happening in the 1930s that may have influenced him to to come up with this idea, right? And like that's a really obvious one, um, but like playing it forward, it's just been it's just been interesting to see how this stuff comes in in waves and is affected by policy and other big cultural things and and don't worry about going off topic <laughs> my my students learn maybe like five weeks into the year that class is more fun if they get me distracted and just like into story time and that's very much <laughs> if this podcast is just like story time um that's cool with me <laughs> um so yeah um Catherine, what do you like what do you hope to accomplish like what what sorts of like are there policy implications that you see coming out of your research for for adolescent victims? Like, where do you where do you hope this goes?
5: Um. Well, hopefully, I hope to continue researching this area. Um, but I think for policy implications, um, one of the main ones in this uh, arrest and prosecutorial decision making paper was how impactful victim cooperation was mm-hmm. um, for adolescent uh, cases, and so I think one of the main implications is that we need to, um, establish victim cooperation very early on in, um, the investigation of sexual assault, as well as, um, maintain victim cooperation throughout the whole entire process. So one implication could be that maybe we just need more training on how to like help establish victim cooperation and things of that nature. Mm
0: -hmm. So how does that, um, mesh with like some of the, not necessarily like the victim blaming stuff, but we know that law enforcement has like ideal victims that they would prefer to work mm-hmm. with. Um, so how does, how does victim cooperation work in that kind of context? Right. Where like, mm-hmm. like, is it just a matter of getting law enforcement to understand that you should listen to all victims that are coming forward or, or what?
1: Yeah. I think it, it goes in
5: tandem with like, um, I just lost my train of thought. Like no worries. victim empowerment type of mm-hmm. training and stuff like that. Um, obviously there could be some people that use victim cooperation as a way to establish, um, like legal factors such as like evidence and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, for evidence collection, I mean, um, so that could also be like another positive way that they can like use victim cooperation to help facilitate other types of case processing factors.
6: Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. So again, just finding ways to like, Mm -hmm reform or refine maybe is the better word like refine how the system is working um that's really interesting like i don't know like just thinking about how adolescents who are by definition so marginalized and then putting in putting them into a situation where they're even further marginalized and seeing how like power dynamics can work out there is really i mean imagine it's got to be really sad sometimes but also like there must be those kids that you've come across that buck expectations i would hope mm-hmm. um awesome thank Can you I say something yeah
1: okay so um of course. My, one of my colleagues Brittany hayes and i have um a recently published paper in violence against women that looks at detective views of teenage complaints um specifically and so um it was 52 interviews with lapd sex crimes detectives and they were um semi-structured kind of more open interviews And um, it became pretty apparent during the interviews that there was a lot of discussion of teenagers within the context of false reporting and lying. And so after the, you know, after the project was completed, we went through the interviews and extracted all information about um, whenever detectives talked about teenagers And out of 52 detectives, every detective that brought up teenagers brought it up, brought them up within the context of false reporting and lying. Mm -hmm. 38 detectives made comments about teenagers lying about sexual assault. And so I think that there's also kind of room for research to look at the difference between, you know, labels of a teenager and labels of, you know, minors. Because it could be that the label teenager brings up skepticism um, when reporting sexual victimization. And so mm-hmm. I think that there's just still a lot of room to be done there, too. Yeah, differentiating that's Differentiating different ages.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, right? Like, minor, I think, carries with it like, an implication of so much more powerlessness, like, ch- like, a child, like, like, minor is just a synonym for child, and, like, so is teenager, but we don't think of teenagers as children, we think of teenagers as teenagers who are surly and angry and whatever.
1: hmm
0: Huh. That's really interesting, like, I never would have thought of that before. Um, which I think is goes, it, goes it's to show like the
1: location too, because this was in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, the teenagers, but they were viewed as like kind of engaging in line to like cover up consensual sex or some indiscretion, indi- like mm-hmm. engaging in alcohol use or drug use, and kind of or running away and using that as an excuse or yeah. you
6: know.
1: I, I know.
5: think there's also that mentality, maybe that uh, it could be a consensual relationship. It's just that their ages are it means it's not.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, so that could also be a factor in, um, I guess yeah. in ours, because we have, um, as victim age increases. Um... So actually, when me and Death Jessica... Sorry, keep going. go ahead.
2: No no no. no, 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 I'm good. I'm done. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Brittany. So
2: me and, me and Jessica actually worked uh, previously on a grant Um, and we were going over encoding a bunch of sexual assault cases. And one of kind of the things that we found that was really interesting in terms of adolescent cases is that a lot of those cases were considered statutory. And so that's what Kat was talking about, that there was, it was a consensual relationship, but by legal definition, it rape because the victim could not legally consent. Mm -hmm. And with a lot of those cases, there wasn't evidence taken or um, uh, the complainant just stopped contact and there was no further initiation from the police.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: So even because of that, you know, unique relationship, it almost then kind of rubbed off on law enforcement. Also, again, don't have any real stats, right? this is just anecdotal, it, just through quoting those cases. But it was almost as though there was not um, a push to further um, investigate those cases. Um, and even when there was, the ADA um, wouldn't accept them or would drop them because of a lack of uh, victim cooperation.
3: I've seen some cases like that too. Um, and they would say sometimes the um, officers would note, or even in the medical examination report, I would see the complainant say, I was not raped he's my boyfriend my parents are upset with him my parents made me do this Mm -hmm. you know so um understandably i can see how you know the cooperation would be an issue or Mm -hmm. they wouldn't pursue that further because of you know lack of cooperation from the parents or from you know from them from the victim yeah because they don't see themselves as a victim
0: yeah
4: in the cases that Brittany was talking about we had a good handful of them where the parent it wasn't the parent that was reporting it it was um, school officials or someone mm. in the neighborhood, and the parents were like, "No, I've agreed to it. I don't know why we're pursuing this legally. I don't want to pursue it and it would just stop
0: the parent would say that they're okay with the relationship, yeah, yeah that
6: was
0: yeah like, an
4: interesting turn that I was not expecting,
0: yeah. I wasn't expecting that either. (laughs) Yeah, it just, like, I, like, the label of victim, I think, is, like, that's an interesting question in your, in your work, like, in all of your work, I would have to imagine, like, even, even people recognizing themselves as, like, somebody that has had something bad happen to them, like, even, even going through that whole, like, never mind, like, victim cooperation, like, victim identification must be, if that's even the, even the, the appropriate term must be yeah, like in pretty some daunting. Some of the studies
3: that look at victim reporting, Some sometimes you'll see reasons that say it wasn't serious enough, I didn't think it was a crime. Mm-hmm. You'll see sometimes victims state that that's some of the reasons why they don't report. Mm-hmm. It's because it wasn't serious enough or they didn't see it as a crime. Yeah. So, yeah, to your point.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: And that goes on back to our culture, right? If, if we're
2: accepting these ideas that... Either certain standards to be met in order for a specific uh, assault mm-hmm. or type of victimization to be considered sexual assault then right then all of these kind of findings make sense mm-hmm. um, in like an awful awful way <laughs> you
0: know criminology is just the study of like awful things
6: <laughs> <And Yeah.
0: laughs> it's all that's all that we do. <laughs> Um, yeah, just even like that question of like what makes something serious? Like how do you how do you operationalize seriousness to an average person? Is is got to be pretty daunting, right? Like kind of like the pain scale at the doctor's office. Like I don't want it, but like I mean I'm laughing, but it's I think probably pretty accurate, you know. I'm
2: pretty sure. So before this unique situation, <laughs> just is. Scene happened. We had an entire class, right? Like, so that's almost four hours where we had this exact discussion, mm-hmm. uh, where we were just saying, like, how do we move forward if those who are experiencing these things don't even identify um, as as being victims?
6: Mm-hmm. Like,
2: right? That that's a initial roadblock, even before police officer or reporting or initial charging, right? That mm-hmm. that's step one. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think that's a great discussion to be had. And we went back and forth for like, four hours, and I still don't think we have a real answer oh. um, for that. But yeah, it's yeah, it's really interesting.
0: I think you'll be you'll be debating that for <laughs> like forty years. <laughs> Honestly, it's just one of those like philosophical questions of justice that is at the heart of our discipline. That we're like, I think is almost. By definition, unanswerable,
6: mm-hmm.
0: like, right? Because um, you have to untangle like the politics of it, but there's also like identity stuff, and it's just it's too much for one it's person.
2: Cultural too, right? Mm-hmm. Some cultures may not identify, or it may be normalized, and so then, right? How do you kind of put those on a hierarchy mm-hmm.
6: um,
2: of what's right, what's wrong? That's also very tricky to yep. kind of peter with.
0: Yeah, because quantitatively, I mean, you don't want to take a purely quantitative approach and, and be like, we're going to weight culture this much, and we're going to weight identity this much. and Because that that is, I mean, honestly, gross, right? And I think just leads to re-victimization for people who recognize themselves as victims or may, I mean, do you want to take somebody who doesn't realize that they're a victim and then convince them they're a victim and that they should be traumatized when they may not be traumatized. And like, what are the ethical implications of that? You know, like, how do you, and I'm just, again, just jabbering out loud for my own, my own sake now, probably. But like, those are tough questions, you know,
1: one of my favorite papers I ever read in grad school, which really like opened my eyes up to this problem or this issue was, um, rape by acquiescence and it was by, um, the last name is Basil, and it was all about how essentially women had been giving into sex with their significant others, and was that kind of coercive relationship when these women said, no, I don't want to have sex, but I do because it feels like it's duty to my husband, or, you know, eventually once we get get started, um, I start to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Um, Was this, you know, this kind of very cutting edge or cutting edge theoretical kind of approach to understanding different coercive relationships that are sexual. And, you know, is that rape? Is that, is, is it rape by acquiescence or is that, you know, communication and <laughs> relationships within intimate partnerships? Yeah. And that, and so, yeah, I think it's really, it's really fascinating.
0: Yeah. I like, had never thought about this until now, but like we, throughout the discipline and i mean sociology too we we think of so much stuff as being on a spectrum now but consent has kind of gone in the opposite direction and is this very much like a dichotomy that some people want to have set in stone but that's just not how human relationships work you know but then how do you how do you argue that without then coming off as like because i even just now hesitated to bring it up because i don't want to sound like a gross like apologists, but I mean that's how relation. Like Aaron's absolutely right. Like that's how relationships are and and have been, forever. Mm-hmm. And so, like, are we doing more damage then by being like, no? It's either this hard yes or hard no, and that's that. Like that has to be. I wonder if that's like a barrier for people coming forward.
1: Probably, I think whenever you force anyone into you know discrete categories that. If they don't fit within that narrow mm-hmm. box, then they don't identify.
6: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've all had the experience of like standing in line at like a restaurant and staring at the menu and being like, I don't know what I want to be boxed into here, or <laughs> voting on election day and I've been standing in line for an hour and I, I get up there to vote and I still don't know which box I want to check. And like, and those are just ultimately like minor things. I mean, voting is not minor, but. Like way smaller things than, than this. And then this also has like a, a time component on it too, right? Where you have to decide now, like, are you, were you a victim or not? Because if you're not, then, you know, we have 10 people behind you who were, Mm -hmm. and that, that kind of messes stuff up, I think for everybody. Um, so I want to talk to Jessica. Jessica has been very quiet, (laughs) um, just being able to be a wallflower. And I appreciate that. (laughs) as a wallflower in my former life. Um, You do work with mental health, right?
4: Um, I'm getting into it.
0: You're getting into it. Still
4: in the early stages.
0: So what what attracted you to it? Like, why did you decide to start getting into it?
4: Um, I decided to start getting into the realm of mental health and um, case processing because the police are de facto mental health workers in a way. I mean, they're encountering everyone and all mm-hmm. stages of their life, the bad, not necessarily the good. Mm-hmm. And mental health is usually seen as like a victim credibility factor. If mm-hmm. so I wanted to know what we were, if we were handling these cases appropriately, or if mm-hmm. we were just kind of sweeping them under the rug because they have mental health issues.
6: And, That's what kind of led me into
0: it. (laughs) Okay. um, So what have you been able to find so far? Like, Is there that that sweeping under the rug factor? Is that happening? Or are you not there yet?
4: Um, In the cases that I've been looking at, only 22% of our sample have actually made it to the arrest stage. So it's very low. Okay. And even lower, actually go on to have the DA press charges.
6: Mm
1: -hmm. And with this data set... um, specifically um and cat you kind of looked at this most recently so correct me if i'm wrong ab- approximately 40ish percent were ended in arrest across the sample cat is that right um in the identified suspects it was like 40%
5: um I, that sounds right
1: yeah so, so definitely the cases that had um complaints with mental health concerns had um lower arrest rates than across the entire sample. Hmm.
0: Um, so why do you think that is?
4: So just from what I've gotten into so far, it seems to be that they're questioning their credibility. People mm-hmm. the with mental health issues are not seen as credible due to whatever mental illness they're facing or whatever issue that they're having. It's just one of those... So
0: is it like one specific type of mental health problem or is it just all people with all mental illnesses are like law enforcement might lump them together or, or what?
6: So
4: with the current data set that I have, we're not able to um, pick out like what mental illnesses the um, victim has. It's more mm-hmm. just if any have been identified by the police or by the victim or someone related
1: within the case.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's all just... Oh, go ahead.
1: Oh, I just wanted... um, One of the reasons that Jessica kind of started this project was, uh, and she can probably speak more to this, but reading through case files and seeing... um, the ways in which cases were individual cases that involved complainants with mental health issues were being treated by law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And also, I um, part of my dissertation work was looking at the factors that predict whether or not police will question a victim's credibility. Most um, case processing research will include a victim credibility indicator when making like arrest decisions or whether that case is going to be forward to the DA. But no research had really teased apart, well, what are the factors that cause a police officer to question a victim's credibility Mm -hmm. and in my dissertation work um, mental health concerns were found to um, police were seven times more likely to question the credibility of victims with mental health issues than other victims
0: okay and I think we had you and me had talked about this you and I had talked about this I slipped there and went back into dad speak Um, (laughs) uh, yeah we had talked about this right, um, a couple of weeks ago, that um, mental health issues just seem to confound law enforcement for whatever reason. And unfortunately, it drags down credibility.
1: Yeah, and I think what is really cool about Jessica's project is looking specifically at the subsample of cases where complainants had documented mental health issues Mm -hmm. to see, to kind of understand, well, how are these unique cases traversing the criminal justice system?
6: Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm.
1: With some of the cases that Jessica and I had looked
2: over to, against previous to this, um, a lot of them, if they were at, like, a home for, like, some sort of rehab, mm-hmm. that was even seen to discredit um, complainants or victims who are disclosing also. So if they were at, like, uh, a rehab... Oh, go ahead. They were at um,
4: intellectual disability facilities. Mm -hmm. And those cases were just kind of brushed under the rug. Really? And then people weren't um, the caretakers in the cases that we were looking at weren't cooperating necessarily with the police. And these individuals were unable to cooperate due to what they were suffering from. And so we can't do victim cooperation
0: when
6: they're not technically able to
0: cooperate on their own, anyways. Mm-hmm. Why? So I'm surprised. Like I'm, I'm honestly surprised that those were cases that were swept under the rug. Um, why do you think they were? Like, is it is it something about like why why is it that living in in a facility like that is grounds to have your victimization um downplayed?
4: I'm not sure necessarily that the police wanted to downplay them, but they weren't able to get the, um, the caretakers to bring them in for interviews or when they did come in for interviews, Mm -hmm. they weren't in the right state of mind to be able to cooperate, to give the interview. Mm -hmm. And so it was just extra hurdles to go through.
0: Hmm. Okay. So just like, unfortunately that's something that comes up maybe frequently with your work is that. It sounds like the more difficult a case looks like it's going to be, the less likely it's going to be processed. Is that is that a pretty fair assumption? And then so ac- across your research agendas, you're all looking at different ways that those, um, that the difficulty happens. and like trying to understand why. I feel
4: like yeah, I think like
1: that, <laughs> yeah, I think that, um, you know, research finds that Police officers and prosecutors operate in that downstream orientation and with sexual assault and rape specifically, the way that the victim will be perceived by actors later in the criminal justice system is often at the forefront of police officers mind. And this was really hit home with the L.A., um, the Los Angeles data because um, when Spawn and Tell Us with their N.I.J. grant found that police were engaging in an unofficial pre-filing screening or pre-arrest screening where they would take a case to the prosecutor before they arrested and said, hey, would you file in this case? And if they said no, they wouldn't arrest. Um, And so there was that informal kind of checking with the DA even prior to conducting a full arre- um, investigation and arrest to see if that case would be prosecuted or there would be initial file. And so I think that that's um, and there's a great article about the misuse of exceptional clearance and that process um, by Cassia Spawning and Catherine Tellis that I think really just highlights what you just said, Andy.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just Again, I think this goes back to like one of the very first things that we talked about is that like with so many things when we're trying to bridge like theory and concept to practice, it seems like, oh, this is easy, right? There's just like a screw loose somewhere and we'll take care of that, have one email about it, and <laughs> everything will be everything will be cool now. And then it's it's very clearly not. And there's you know, ten thousand and one uh, reasons why. Um either the state has messed things up or on the ground, things are messed up or culturally um, we're not even at a place yet where things could be working right. And it's just immensely frustrating. Um, So I'm curious, like one thing that I like to talk to people about on the show um, is how they're able to bring their stuff into the classroom. Um, And so I know that you're all very early in your careers and may not have like a lot of teaching experience yet. So this can be like hypothetical, um, but have you thought about like how how do you want to teach undergrads about sexual assault? And if you have, um, what does that what does that look like in your mind?
2: So in terms of teaching, I've been able to select here, um, What I think all of us except for Jessica, but um, she's here in, in our mind <laughs> in the classroom. <laughs> All of us will be teaching methods, but we also all had to go through like a guest lecture of some sort. And so, even though I'm not directly teaching about victimology or any sort of like gender studies, I still try to use examples Mm -hmm. such as those um, as much as possible. One, to just like desensitize. And not in, like, the way that we automatically go to. Like, mm-hmm. I want to desensitise the topic in terms of, like, it not being such a taboo topic. Um, so if I can in some way incorporate, like, okay, you're, you know, we're going to learn about sampling today. How would we sample, you know, um, a snowball sample for sexual assault survivors? Mm-hmm. How would you go about doing that? Mm-hmm. Um, although it is more tricky, and it presents... Um, Obstacles on its own. I think that there's a lot of a lot more benefits that come with making it a um, normal topic uh, mm-hmm. because right I feel like sometimes I, I forget that. I always you know it's like my reality. I always we're always talking about you know sexual assault just because like that's our our work, but mm-hmm you know, I'll be talking to my mom, I'm like, oh, that reminds me of this case. And she's like, you know, that's, like, not normal, right? <laughs> and so, I, you know, it kind of humbles me in a little bit, in a, in a sense. Um, and so if I can give back, even if I'm not directly teaching um, about victimology, um, just using examples as much as possible, I feel like it does my part at the stage I'm in. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, definitely, definitely doing that. But moving forward, um, you know, when part of my independent study over, let's see, fall, fall next year, um, I'll be doing kind of assessing, bringing topics surrounding the Me Too movement. Uh-huh. Um, so we're going to examine the perception of uh, Me Too movement-related content in the classroom. Um, and tangentially related to that, I'll be creating then a victimology syllabus. Mm -hmm. And so kind of incorporating relevant topics, um, relevant movements that they can um, relate to, in addition to, right, hopefully the over kind of courses, the exposure to talking about these topics,
6: Mm -hmm.
2: will then provide a better kind of platform um, to teach and discuss and um, about these topics especially
0: about sexual assault yeah i guess like a, another way to think about this question is like um <laughs> how like like what about this do you like to dork out about you know what i mean like mm-hmm. that's <laughs> that, that's you know when you're thinking into the future of your career and, and you've done this i think all of you a little bit already like i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do this like that's Um, it's energizing, at least for me (laughs) to to see that. Um, but it's, I'm just like generally curious, like that's one thing that I, I miss about grad school is that like dork out factor and what are we super excited about being able to do?
3: I think something that I would do, and of course it's because I'm biased, is like whenever I do teach this class, I want to teach about the institutions, right? But I also want to not forget about the crime labs. Mm-hmm. And so what role they play, <laughs> no one talks about that. Nobody right? talks about the and crime so, lab. No one talks about it. So I for sure am going to incorporate what we do. Mm-hmm. What we do, how it's useful, why it's useful, how we've impacted policy and how we can continue to impact policy. So I want to make sure I incorporate that. And something else I found out is that A lot of victims don't know that there's other resources besides the police department that they can seek help from so i also Mm -hmm. want to incorporate different resources that can be usable for individuals Mm -hmm. to be able to contact so i want to make sure that the classroom feels like a safe place just in case someone wants to share or someone wants to um disclose or add to the conversation in a way Mm -hmm. that we have um and so i just kind of envision you know, there being discussions that are honest, discussions that are sensitive, um, where people are um, cognizant of other perspectives and other people's possible stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to be uh, a community. That's what I really see. That's what I really want. Building so I've never talked before, so maybe I have high hopes. <laughs> oh, no,
0: here. you should have absolutely high hopes. Like, I would... <laughs> No. <laughs> Believe me. I have I have seen so many professors from undergrad to where I am now who have been doing it forever who just don't have any kind of joy in it anymore, and yeah. who maybe never did in the first place, honestly. And so, like that idea of community building is is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that like if you do end up at a teaching focused place, like that's what you have to do, mm-hmm. you know. Um who else wants to dork out about stuff with me? <laughs>
5: Um I also think um, coming from Sam we're very blessed that our university is very active mm-hmm. in a lot of like the sexual assault awareness stuff as well as like we have a, a wide variety of faculty that do victimology research um, so that's something I have to remind myself that like when I do go and finally teach is that I can use a lot of the tools I learned here at Sam mm-hmm. to help incorporate that or facilitate uh, like community-based uh, things around sexual assault as well
0: mm-hmm. so you've been like taking notes on what you've been
5: yeah
0: like what your professors are doing that you want to mimic mm-hmm. mirror, I, like, my undergrad university had
5: like nothing compared to sam in terms of like victimology or sexual assault awareness or anything like that
0: mm-hmm. we can we can throw up a link to shsu.edu <laughs> <laughs> in the show notes here um, as well i think your dean might follow me on twitter so um, I'm sure that she'll appreciate it. <laughs> mine my Dean may be less so, but that's okay.
1: <laughs> well, our Dean's a guy, so oh. probably not him.
0: Okay. I thought I think somebody from same Houston follows me.
1: Okay, From your administration. Um, so our college is so large that okay. we have our own college that houses four criminal justice related departments. So we're not in humanities <laughs> or sociology or anything. We have the College of Criminal Justice that has the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice, the Department of Forensic Science, the Department of Security Studies, and the Department of Victim Studies.
0: That's incredible. It's and insane. insane.
1: It's huge. <laughs> it's, like, that's um, insane. Pat said we're very blessed, which always makes me laugh whenever anyone says that because I'm from California and I never say that we're blessed.
0: <laughs> Why? <laughs> it's just
1: not common vernacular. Like the whole like, "Welcome okay. to the South." Yeah, too blessed <laughs> to be too, blessed. It's yeah. like just right now picked up.
0: Yep. Uh huh. Well, yeah. No, too yeah.
1: blessed to be. No, stressed. no. But <laughs> I say it the
0: other way because I have a friend who. When I was on Facebook, he would he would post, like, everything, every day was, like, hashtag rise and grind, hashtag too blessed to be stressed. And I always wanted to troll him and be like, some of us
6: are too stressed, are too stressed <laughs> to be
0: blessed. Thank you. <laughs> um, but I didn't want to be that guy. <laughs> so I kept it to myself. Um, yeah, so that, I mean, again, this is just, like, I was talking to some people yesterday about, about how, like, it's it's always kind of shocking to hear about how other universities function because I am the criminologist at my university. I'm I'm not anything like what Sam Houston apparently has, and so maybe I should try to make some life changes. I'm just <laughs>
3: shocked at how universities function. I mean, coming from the practitioner world, it's just a whole. My goodness, it's a different animal. Function like, or not I function really the interview, I was like, say what now? We have to do what? <laughs> You know, I don't just sit at a round table and just talk about why you should hire me. Like, that's not what I'd have to put on a full-on presentation in front like, the whole department.
6: For,
0: <laughs> yeah, for probably a couple of days.
3: Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And cool. every one of those is going to be its own, like, its own experience. <laughs> no interviews are the same. Yeah. Uh, you'll, so there's always going to be somebody who is, like, that person in the department who's going to ask like that question, that's going to have nothing to do with anything that you're there for. Um, yeah. When I interviewed by the guy who was provost, who's not, he's actually a president somewhere else. Now. Um, I met with him and his office was in this place, like this, this building where they had, they had tried to do this like modern thing where all the walls were, were just glass, like just glass, Right. And he sat me down, he had this, like, way too big office, and he was like, so I'm just wondering, uh, how you would feel about doing, like, a forensics program. And I'm like, that's not anything that I do. (laughs) That is not why you brought me in, that has, I have zero experience with this, um, so, If you asked me to do that, I would say no, because you have the wrong person for it. And he's like, well, that's not what I'm expecting. But I was just curious because I saw it on TV. Oh, wonderful. Like, thanks a lot, man. (laughs) I appreciate you doing doing the bare minimum of legwork on my interview.
2: (laughs) Referencing something on TV.
0: Yep. And that's where I ended up. So... Um, there's actually, yeah, it's a funny, uh, there's a funny story about that interview that I, I can't tell on air, <laughs> but I'll save that for when we end the call. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, is there anything else that you guys are excited about that you want to talk about while well, I've got you all here? Ed, if in terms I'm... of
2: researching. So I feel like I'm kind of fortunate. I had, yeah, we say fortunate, not blessed. So like, way. Other, whole of geographical locations. I
0: grew up. I grew up outside of Detroit, so I'm, I'm familiar.
2: You're fortunately <laughs> blessed.
0: Yep. Fortunately <laughs> blessed. Yep.
2: So I've had my undergrad um, and master's mentor was somewhat of an activist researcher. so That's what she uh, coined herself as, or uh-huh. an action researcher. And so kind of like adopted that I feel like in a sense where that's kind of where I want to go and it's unfortunate because I when I was going through you know like thinking back during my undergrad I would have benefited so much more doing like more hands-on stuff I feel like it just creates an additional layer of I feel like identifying with what you're studying or learning and so Mm -hmm. Um, Her name is Shelly, Dr. Shelly Clevenger. She had us do a lot of projects mm-hmm. where, you know, for representing victimization, we would take a, some sort of toy, like a kid's toy, and somehow represent victimization in in a very creative, unique way. And mm-hmm. so um, I was a TA for that class, and I was like, can I do the project? <laughs> she said, You don't have to do anything. You're a TA. I'm like, but can I? <laughs> and so I ended up taking... Um, a guess-who toy or the game, mm-hmm. um, and every fourth person, I took um, the card out, right? And so, like, every one in four individuals will experience some form of sexual victimization. Mm-hmm. So it was so cool to see the different um, creative minds kind of putting together, right, stats Criminal justice and then some sort of visual representation of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that will forever be in my mind. That will forever be in their mind. Um, And so I think doing more of that, I feel like I wish it was more common. Whether you're at, right, an R1 or whatever other university, there's just so much more that students can benefit from that, Mm -hmm. I personally believe. Um, And so, excuse me, that's where I kind of like geek out is trying to figure out in what ways can I have my students be engaged in the community, um, applying what they're learning in the classroom. Um, so that way we kind of take down that kind of ivory tower facade, right? Yes. I, I want it to be more of a community where it's not just like us versus them, where that kind of mentality is originated. I want it to be like, it, 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 it impacts you, you impact it. You know the way you respond or say to certain things, and so I think that's um, really beneficial, and I'm really excited to kind of implement it
0: moving forward. Yeah, I have. I had students. Um, I taught a class last semester called Murder Monsters and Mayhem, which was like an excuse yeah. for me to to do research for this book project. Um, it was like a history of crime with like some theory brought into it. But one of their projects was to do a victim memorial um, on any case that they wanted to. Um, and so I had all kinds of like really incredible stuff come out of that i had i had students um, like develop full parks that they would build if they had the money to i had students uh, one student did something for all of the children who were victims at jonestown um like really it was, i mean and they said like it was really really heavy for them but they were really happy that they did it and i think that like that empathy building is super important for what we do because again we don't want to like and I've I've been guilty of this in my classes, right? Of just assigning lit reviews, and that's that, and like that. That is not what. That's not the only skill that they that they're going to need to have. That any of you are going to need to have. Like it's it's more important to be to have empathy, right? Than than anything else. Um,
1: yeah, absolutely. One thing that I really appreciate about this working group specifically is even if they don't all identify as like action oriented or activist researchers, many of them. Through my eyes, I see them as doing that. Um, You know, our um, graduate students in general are very active um, during Sexual Assault Awareness Month events. Our students, um, meaning the grad students in criminal justice specifically, host, organize, and execute Walk a Mile in Her Shoes, um, and they have every year. um, Since I've been at SAM, Um, you know, Shamika working alongside, you know, Crime lab forensics folk, um, Brittany having a history with rape crisis centers. Um, I think that it just makes for a really awesome um, environment to work in because everybody not only is interested in learning the research side of things, but they're also putting that knowledge into practice and trying to make a difference in people's lives. And I think that that's so important and it's not it's not necessary when you're conducting research, but it makes it so much more enjoyable, I think um, to witness them kind of executing this research alongside their, their community work.
0: And I think we can stop there on that glowing recommendation (laughs) from your professor (laughs) um thank you all so much for taking the time to talk with me today
1: thank you Andy. thank you thank you
6: you. thanks for having us
0: hey andy wilczak again so I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. (laughs) So if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at HeyDrWill, that's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology-based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.